This is Josh of Dharma Punks, New York, and taking a two-week retreat, disconnecting from all of the various and attendant responsibilities of a Buddhist pastor, going to some place natural. So, for the next two Tuesdays, you won't have to put up with my rambling on various different topics of dodgy interest, if all goes as planned. I'll be back for the March 7th, Tuesday evening gathering, and uh, hopefully recharged, filled with fresh insights, at least resplendent with new energy to tackle the remnants of the winter and so on and so forth. So that's about the size of it. If you would like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, everything I do is provided entirely free of any charge. Uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X, NYC, and the PayPal buttons on the website, Dharma Punks with an X, NYC. Tonight, we're going to be addressing rituals, placebos, and actually why they are actually far more effective than we might normally think and how they work. And we'll be talking about a specific Buddhist uh, ritual that is uh, beneficial, and then we'll practice it in our meditation. So in the metta sutta, metta being loving kindness, Buddha notes that the one who practices metta will sleep easily, wake easily, not have any nightmares, will be impervious to fires, poisons, and weapons, will be protected by the spirits, and will be invariably serene. So obviously, when we talk about being protected and impervious to fires, poisons, and weapons, we're talking about a ritual that is offering rather magical outcomes. And yet, the wonderful Barbara Fredrickson, a famous psychologist, found that it provides significant regulation to the autonomic nervous system, that it enhanced people's immune function, i.e. made them more protected, and reduced anxiety and increased well-being. It turns out that the meta practice does, in fact, have significant effectivity. And that's going to kind of set the theme for tonight's talk. We might as well start with the most uh, common, which is the placebo effect. The placebo effect, in a nutshell, is that if we believe a treatment works, even if the treatment itself is from a scientific perspective completely inert, the mind can create changes that not, not only to our physiological health, but to our psychological health and also to the world as we perceive it. Throughout history and cultures, people have experienced significant relief from plants uh, and foods, ritual practices, without any actual medicinal value as far as we 
can tell from a Western perspective. Placebos have been very effective. I mean, sugar pills, which have absolutely no effect on someone's physiological state. And these placebos are commonly used in pharma research to gauge the effectiveness of an actual drug. In other words, for a, a drug to reach the marketplace, it has to be more effective than a placebo, which theoretically should be very little. But actually, placebos do have benefits, and drug manufacturers actually very often struggle to create medications that outperform placebos. In other words, people given sugar pills that they're told are medicine, and voila, they will experience significant relief and improvements. So placebos work best on symptoms that are modulated by your brain, like depression, stress-related ailments, anxieties, and so forth, uh, especially pain relief. And it's not just with those kind of maladies. Uh, placebos have been shown to provide substantial and market relief for people with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, improved respiration for those with asthma, and it's even effective in treatment uh, of mild Parkinson's disease. So given a placebo, People with Parkinson's will very often show dopaminergic activation in the ventral striatum in the regions of the brain that govern movement, like I suppose the basal ganglia and the cerebellum and stuff like that. Placebos actually do help. In 2015, people given a placebo for depression showed uh, the same changes in PET scans that those who were given actual antidepressants. And uh, another study, one of my favorite, people who were told that they got eight hours of sleep, even though they got four hours or less, performed as well as those who slept for eight hours. So simply being told that they had gotten a full night of sleep uh, reduced the adenosine and upregulated the glutamate and all those neurotransmitters that are associated with being awake and alert. Now, of course, it's not just limited to pills and saline injections. When we're talking about rituals, Crystals, shaman stones, dream catchers, movement, trance rituals, spells, and so forth. And there's so many examples of rituals that actually have had real sociological beneficial outcomes. The uh, And in doing research for this talk, the Kofan shamans in the Amazonian basin successfully treat many diseases by conceiving them as spells, and they do elaborate uh, procedures to remove the spells. And those who are experiencing the ailment actually experience relief. Anthropological studies by Malinowski of the people in the Trobriand Islands in the Pacific Ocean do these 
rituals involving painting their canoes with black, red, and white paint, chanting spells before they would go out fishing in the turbulent Pacific seas. And in doing these rituals, they started to experience fewer accidents. Researchers at the University of Wellington and the Max Planck Institute in Germany showed that sacrificial rituals were part of a necessary transition from small nomadic groups to large stratified societies that could better survive in certain ecosystems that were less suitable to smaller tribes. Placebo studies and ritual theory, a comparative analysis of the Navajo by Ted Kapchuk, that was a Harvard study, showed that Navajo's healing ceremonies, which include chants and dramas and sand paintings, um, and a medicine man who would simply touch the sand painting and then dance around the patient would invariably lead to real improvements in the person who was the focus of the ritual. Um, and here's a Western one. I'm going to stop giving you all these examples after this one, but this was my particular favorite because it's kind of funny, at least to me. There was a study called Don't Stop Believing Rituals Improve Performance by Re Decreasing Anxiety. And so what the researchers did was, uh, I think, particularly cruel. They had the participants perform an anxiety-inducing task, which was to sing Don't Stop Believing by, um, oh my God. I'm, fortunately, I can't remember. Uh, I'll remember the name of them. But Don't Stop Believing in front of a group of strangers. And uh, that sounds like a horrible task. Um, and Journey. Oh, God. Journey. Don't stop believing. So anyway, that sounds like a miserable task. But uh, half of the participants who, before singing Don't Stop Believing, were given a ritual to do. And the ritual I love, they were told to draw basic shapes like triangles and circles and then sprinkle salt on these drawings of triangles and circles. It was a completely meaningless thing that the rich that the researchers just made up. Uh, and the other half, though, did absolutely nothing. Well, guess what? The participants who completed the ritual of sprinkling the salt on some drawings they made of circles and squares sang better, had significantly lower heart rates, and reported feeling significantly less anxious. So how do rituals work? I mean, it's a little bit obvious. I think I've given uh, um, away a lot of it, but I'm going to dive into the effectivity of rituals, which is rituals are a sequence of behaviors that are performed with some degree of faith in their efficacy that they work, though we can't understand how they bring about the desired outcomes. 
they work primarily by distracting our attention away from our discomfort when you take a placebo your attention focuses away from the pain to the actual expectation that the placebo will have some benefit and thus you're given permission to no longer focus your attention as much on the pain or ailment in your body rituals and placebos provide a sense that there's a meaningful though hidden order to the universe with all kinds of beneficial powers that transcend our individual strengths and that induces the secretion of dopamine and serotonin while it reduces the stress hormone cortisol so simply believing that there's some force that can intercede on our behalf or some powers that can be tapped into reduces um cortisol secretion um in enacting a ritual we feel connected to forces larger than ourselves and to very important uh, core values as it were so um let's dive into that a little bit further our perception of the world is shaped entirely by our expectations um essentially guesses based on prior experience now what does that mean well the brain is an organ that's enclosed entirely in darkness in a skull and the only contact we have with the external world comes courtesy of electrical impulses or signals arriving through nerves so the brain literally uh, through it, all these nerve signals come to the thalamus and they get then uh sent out to the various regions like first sight the occipital lobe for hearing the um temporal for body sensations go up the somatosensory in your parietal lobe and all that so um but the brain is just getting these electrical signals and it basically is guessing what is out there based on previous electrical signals and over time it creates a map based on expectations when someone kicks a ball to us um the actual sound of the kick versus the sight of the ball rolling versus the feeling in our body of the grass beneath our feet are all happening actually uh, being processed in different amounts of time but the brain somehow aligns them all together and even though the events happen very often a half a second before they arrive in the brain the brain makes it seem by predicting where the ball actually is so that we can actually kick the ball back to someone it's very very complex but it's worth knowing that only a very small fraction of the stimuli required to create the world uh, reaches the actual sensory processing regions so most of what we see and experience are based on expectations we experience the world we expect to experience and we experience the body that we expect to experience and that this goes a long way to showing how placebos and rituals work if you take a pill 
and based on your previous experience if pills have worked then the pill will lead to very real pain relief or anxiety reduction and so forth your body will feel less stressed and so forth but on the other hand people who've in the past uh not had any benefit from uh medications when they take a pill and they don't expect it to work very often even though it would be effective in others it won't be effective with them because their brains will create their experience with the expectation that that pill won't work and indeed i know many many people who uh, suffer from anxiety disorders who are given medications that i see have worked with countless others and should work with them but because of previous disappointments the medications offer no positive results so any kind of expectation for improvement activates what we will call top-down pain modulation by the brain in other words top-down means the expectation that gets produced in the frontal lobe then distracts our attention away and changes the perception of the world in general so after taking a placebo i will shift my focus to other stimuli away from the pain or the discomfort or to the uh to the stimuli that's unpleasant if i expect a pill to alleviate um uh gastric distress i won't focus on the symptoms and therefore the gastric effect distress will be alleviated my internal uh dialogue my thoughts will change from constant self-referential activation of my default mode which is worrying oh my god i've got this pain or discomfort and i'll start focusing on the world around me exteroception and that will down, down modulate my 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 discomfort so rituals elicit in so doing dopamine rewards as they provide a sense of control and the dopamine stems the secretion of cortisol so there's very real effectivity that we can see in fact placebos work better with cues uh someone in a white lab coat with a stethoscope who gives us a sugar pill that sugar pill will be much more effective because we'll expect what a doctor gives us to be efficient and worth if somebody in a business suit gave us the sugar pill it wouldn't be anywhere near as effective and in fact guess what clinical trials have shown as much but this might raise the question what if i know something is a placebo what if i know that i'm being given something or in, engaging in a ritual and i know that it's just a ritual well multiple studies show that even when people know they're engaging in a ritual that's just made up or taking a placebo they're still effective in a 2014 study they gave one group of migraine sufferers a drug 
labeled with the drug's name. They gave another group a drug labeled placebo. And they gave a third group absolutely nothing. So the placebo was over 50% as effective as the real medication, even though it was labeled placebo. Those who were given nothing received had absolutely no pain relief. They did the same trial for those with IBS, and they found the same results. Labeling a placebo as placebo still led to significant relief. Cancer survivors with severe fatigue who took pills labeled placebo for three weeks demonstrated notable improvements. So simply engaging in any self-care ritual will reap benefits. And I'll note that in Western health procedures infuse all the interactions with symbolic powers. Uh, Benedetti and colleagues show that the rituals of Western treatments are often the most significant component of the treatment outcomes. I'll say that again, the rituals of the treatments are often the most significant component not the actual medications or procedures. When patients are administered painkillers such as um, buprenorphine and tramadol, but in hidden infusions, these powerful analgesics have significantly little effectivity. But if you tell a patient that you're giving them Valium, um, the patient will have very little pre- and post-operative anxiety. But it only happens if it's accompanied by a ritual. So the patient has to see them, the doctor fussing, uh, putting something into a tube, doing this whole procedure, and then they will experience the relief. So this raises the question, how can I perform a ritual for myself. And of course, <clears throat> you can create your own ritual. For instance, after a breakup, um, getting a candle, writing the person's name on it, lighting the candle, and sitting and telling yourself that if you uh, walk around the candle five times as it, as it burns down, that you will think less and less of your ex will actually probably be effective. I just made that up. Rituals, again, involve a specific step-by-step -step sequence of actions that are very easily repeatable. And the demands of the sequence that the, the sequence places on our working memory leave us little room for the anxious, ruminating inner voices that cause so much stress and cortisol relief, release, excuse me, secretion. So these rituals help us prepare for challenging experiences by not only reducing stress, but by giving or lending a sense of control. Because again, the ritual itself, the taking an action, 
gives a sense that we're actually now engaging in an activity rather than being simply uh, the uh, victims of circumstance, being the recipients of external events. We now have a sense that we are engaging in something that provides some semblance of control. So <laughs> given all that, we're going to circle all the way back to the opening uh, of tonight's talk, which was the meta meditation, which the Buddha promised would provide all kinds of protection from uh, fire and poisons and weapons. And while that's a little bit unprovable, Barbara Fredrickson has shown this practice actually significantly uh, regulates the autonomic nervous system and also reduces anxiety. And so we're going to practice the metta ritual together, which is a meditation. So uh, find the most comfortable seated position that you can and look away from the screen. Just look, put it so that no one can see you and that you don't have to worry about what you look like so that you are completely off camera so that you don't have to worry about how you appear. Only I have to remain on screen <laughs> because I'll be yabbering a little bit doing this, but it's best to meditate in a situation where you're not self-conscious, where you have to sit in a posture that denotes uh, serenity or solemnity or whatever. Just allow yourself to actually be in a posture that feels really, 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 really good and relaxing for you. And closing the eyes... And just finding a place in your body that feels really, by a place in your body, I mean sensations associated with your internal experience. Sensations that are comfortable enough that you can rest your awareness on these sensations without inducing any sense of uh, stress or effort. Just find the most comfortable sensations in your body. And
if it's a spacious area, all the better. And if you'd like to make the body feel a little bit more relaxed, let's raise the shoulders and rotate them back and then drop them so that your arms fall heavily away from the head and your shoulders are relaxed. Take a nice breath into the belly and expand the belly and then release it and soften so that the belly doesn't have as much tension. And then you can if you like to paired muscle relaxation, starting with the soles of the feet, putting a lot of tension and curving the soles of the feet, squinching the toes, and then releasing, clenching the calf muscles, and then releasing tightening the thigh muscles as tight as they can and then releasing squinching the buttocks and then releasing and continuing to move up the body when you reach the arms, making fists and then releasing, tensing at the forearms and releasing. Especially good to tense muscles in the back and release. And when you get to the head, squinch all the muscles in the face, make a really ugly pinched face, and then release to a natural relaxed comfortable natural uh, expression and if you like uh, <clears throat> you can put one hand on your heart center and just rest the palm on the vagal nerve in the front of the chest or you can put you can cross both arms in front of your chest so that your palms rest near the armpits and just if you want tap gently left, right, left, right. And then releasing the arms back to a comfortable position. All of those types of rituals are really good to help relax inhabit the body and now let's just find an anchor for our attention an anchor is a ongoing 
group of sensations associated with uh, one area of the body or a few small areas of the body that occur automatically without any need to intercede. And while the most common anchor for practice is generally the breath, just observing, for example, the breath as it uh, expands the chest and releases it or expands the belly or the sensations of the air entering at the tip of the nose. But it doesn't have to be the breath. You could simply observe the sensations in the mouth swallowing the movement of the tongue. You could observe the movement of your eyes behind closed eyelids. You could sit with the sounds arriving to consciousness from the immediate world around us. You could simply feel the different feelings arising and passing in the torso, feelings of ease, feelings of discomfort and tightness, neutral feelings. Ultimately, find your most comfortable anchor, a place for you to reside. And whenever anything seeks to grab your attention, just note whatever it is, acknowledge it, and then Bring your attention back to your anchor. Whatever sensation is the most comfortable and soothing. And even if at times a thought snatches us away from the present moment and we wind up drifting off into ruminations about the past or predictions about the future or obsessions about events that are happening not around us. Don't add any judgment or frustration Really, so much benefit occurs from simply noting and feeling good about your practice. And just every time you wake up from a thought, you're experiencing a small version of enlightenment or awakening. 
you're waking up from something that's not real into sensations that are very real. And that's what awakening or liberation entails. So every time you drift away, it's another opportunity to experience that small awakening moment of when you return to your anchor. So your anchor should be very pleasant. Anyway, let's sit in silence for a while.
And at this point, we'll start the meta practice. So the most common translation of the meta phrases is may beings be happy, healthy, safe, and peaceful. And we'll use those translations. Another, the uh, also phrases are metta, karuna, mudita, upekka. And at the end, we can recite those phrases as well as you like. So bring to mind a being, a non-human being, that you would like to extend loving kindness and compassion towards. Now this being could be an animal that's beloved, animals you don't know but visualize. Could be other beings from trees and lakes, or the entire earth itself. It may be something that represents all beings, but just have a visual in your mind if that's possible. And part of the meta practice is not just the recitation of the phrases, which are effective, but also cultivating the feeling of real care for that which we visualize. So really try to cultivate a sense of, of kind concern for whatever you visualize as a being, all beings. When you have selected an image or a sense of what that being might be. The phrases may all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe. And may all beings be peaceful. These are simply our intentions towards beings. Of course, beings are not always safe or peaceful, but these are just our intentions. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe. May all beings be peaceful.
and then bring to mind someone that you care about, someone that is important to you, someone that it's easy to wish happiness for, someone that you know or someone who just deserves or it's just easy to express beneficence towards May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be peaceful. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be peaceful. And now bring to mind someone that you don't know too well or don't, even if you want to uh, try, someone that you're struggling with. Just hold their image in mind. As a way to alleviate and feel closer to all beings. You have the image in mind of someone you've been struggling with or someone you simply don't know. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be peaceful.
And then bring to mind an image of yourself, either today as you might appear in your mind, or if you'd prefer an inner child that deserves care, a younger version of yourself during a time where you experienced hardship and didn't have enough love and care provided. So cultivate whatever image of yourself you can. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I be peaceful. And then reciting the metaphrases first, Sabe, Sata, Suki, Hantu. Sabe, Sata, Suki, Hantu. Sabe, Sata, Suki, Hantu. It's the ancient Pali, or may all beings be happy and peaceful. And then Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. The four kinds of compassion. Appreciation, kindness, and balance.
And so hopefully that practice will have brought about some ease, some sense of peacefulness. And whenever you're ready, you can bring your attention back 